Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm going through my Rolodex of great stories. Let me see here. Ah, here's one. How about this? Patrick Morley uh, builds one of Florida's 100 largest privately held companies at the age of 35. And by that time, he thought, there must be more to life than just this. There's got to be something more. And he was so motivated, he started a Bible study, a weekly Bible study, in a bar, the handful of guys... And that study now reaches uh, thousands of men around the world. That was uh, the motivation for his book, The Man in the Mirror, and it's named one of the 100 most influential books of the 20th century. It's the first Patrick Morley book I read. Now he's got a new one out, which I'm getting to talk to him about today, which makes me very happy. It's called The Four Voices Taking Control of the Conversation in Your Head. Wow, that's a great topic. Pat, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. And so, as a comedian, you probably have more than four voices in your head, right? <laughs> oh, well, you don't. You don't want to go down that road, Pat. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> so uh, it's good to be with you thank, and your listeners as well. Thank you for having me. Oh, delight! So this is not just for men. This book is for men and women. Yeah, that's right. Of course, I'm I'm a men's author, so I'm a one-trick pony. You know, men's discipleship, that's my trick. I can talk to you really about anything as long as it's that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but the, the voices in our head, I mean, that's a universal issue, right? And so right. I thought, well, well, let's go ahead and make sure that we include women in this as well. Yeah. yeah. So how did you come about developing this clarity for these voices? Uh, 2 a.m. is the answer, you know. Perfect. <laughs> you know, you wake up at 2 a.m. and... <laughs> Your mind is racing. You don't know how to get under control. You have all these thoughts sort of tumbling over each other. You have these voices talking over each other. Uh, you're, What's going on? You're losing me, Pat. You're losing me. Try to get me back here. <laughs> That's me at 2 in the morning. My voices, all these voices are, are racing around. So how did you narrow it down to four voices? Well, you know, I'm a, a Bible teacher. I've got a you know seminary degree and all that. And I'm this year working on my 35th year reading through the Bible, cover to cover. And, you know, you learn a few things as you get uh, further down the road. I, I've often said that most of the really big ideas about Christianity take 10 or 20 years to sink in, you know, like grace and sovereignty of God. You know, what is that for crying out loud? And uh, so when you do study the Bible, you see in the just a very clear pattern or outline of these four voices. Let me give you the arc of the book, okay? Okay, be great. So we all know that we have a running conversation all day long. We call that self-talk, and we need self-talk. It's very important. That's how we take all the little bits and pieces of things that come at us all day long and fit them into some sort of a, of a congruent story that helps us make sense of our lives. But listeners, here's the point. Uh, you are not the only voice in the conversation. There are four other voices that are constantly exerting themselves to influence what we think, say, and do. Those four voices, are you ready? Mm -hmm. The world, the flesh, the devil, and the Holy Spirit. And our job is to figure out which voice is speaking and then take control of the conversation. So what I wanted to do here is I wanted to, to, you know, knowledge is power. I mean, it's not everything, but knowledge is definitely 
powerful, and you can't solve a problem that you don't understand. So I wanted to help our readers understand each of these four voices and then, uh, you know, how to take control of, of the conversation. And so I've got a lot of tools in here to help help with that. I like that. So when you come to faith in Christ, that's when I think you start to hear these voices more clearly. Is that fair? Um, yes, I, th- I think that consciously, you hear them more consciously. They're always subconsciously working on you. So, for example, like the, the voice of the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember when I got out of college, I knew, I knew where I wanted to go to work. I got an appointment with the owner of the company, and he sat down. And he said, you know, I really like you, and I think you have potential. The problem is you don't have enough gray hair. Nobody's going <laughs> to listen to you, and he didn't, and he didn't hire me. Uh-huh. And, you know, so that's the, what, what's that? That's the voice of the world saying, you know, you're too young to make a difference. Mm. But, hey, Bill, I hear men all the time, older men all the time telling me, hey, it's like, you know, they, they don't want me anymore. It's just, it's like they, they say, you know, you're expendable and, and, and we've used you up and we don't need you anymore. And so you're done. And so that's the voice of the world, again, saying, you know, you're too old to make a difference. So listeners, this is, this is very subtle, okay? Uh, this is not like some sort of grand scheme to get you involved in some deep sin pattern, but this is the, the pattern of the world that the Bible says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on the basic principles of this world. Okay, so the world is saying it doesn't make any difference whether you're young or old. You really can't make a change. You really can't have an impact. But the Bible, the Bible gives a very different report. So Joseph, David, Jesus, they all began their careers at the age of 30 and made these incredible impacts in their early 30s. And then you have people like Sarah, Abraham, Moses, Paul. They all made their greatest contribution, played their best music in the last one-third of their lives. So the Bible says that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're young or old, you can always make a difference. Now, that may seem like a small, subtle difference, but it's, it has tremendous implications for those of us who would like to, you know, leave a mark. Stephen Jobs used to talk about creating the dent in the universe. I think Christians are trying to take the dent out of the universe, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Patrick Morley is my guest. His new book is called The Four Voices, Taking Control of the Conversation in Your Head. What are those four voices? They're the world, the flesh, the devil, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pat, I'd love for you to talk about the flesh. Yeah, so, uh, gosh, I'm an expert on that, so <laughs> let's get started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the, the voice of the flesh, it's deeply embedded in us. So the flesh, listeners, and you've heard the sinful nature before. These are the exact same uh, Greek word, and they're translated different different ways in different Bible versions, but it, that's what it is. It's our sinful nature. And uh, we all have it. And here's the thing. When we become a follower of Jesus, the sinful nature is not completely removed. Uh, I I would illustrate it this way. We have an oak tree in our yard and has an invasive vine on it called a cat's claw. And the cat's claw, I'm constantly pulling the the, the vine uh, off the tree and, uh, and so because if I don't, it's going to grow 50 feet up and take over the tree. Well, why don't I just dig it out by the roots? Well, here's the reason why. It has a bulbous root that's intertwined with the roots of the oak tree. Ooh. Yeah, and so the only way to get the invasive vine out would be to actually <laughs> dig out the roots of the oak tree as well and that kill the tree. Mm-hmm. 
And so I just basically leave it there, and then I manage it. And that's that's exactly what the Bible tells us to do with this sinful nature. Paul himself, he said, hey, I... I don't know why I do what I do. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that I do. You know, he said, it's sin living in me. And so he understood that and, and explains to us that battling against our flesh is part of the normal Christian experience. Everybody has to do it. I love that illustration, too, of that vine in, the, in that oak tree. They're just there together, and they just has to be managed. Has to be managed. Yeah, that's a good illustration. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about the devil. I think there's oftentimes people assign too much credit to the devil, and I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. So two opposite areas there, right? One would be giving too much credit, and of course the other would be not giving enough. Mm -hmm. The Bible really has two narratives about the devil, and the first narrative is the one where we, you know, get to make fun of him. So he's kind of like this washed-up angel that has a lot of nicknames, right? Because he doesn't have any power except that which is temporarily given to him. Yes, he is the, the Bible says he's the ruler of the world. But when the Bible uses the word world in this sense, it's not talking about all of creation. It's talking about that part of the world that's unregenerate or unredeemed where you know sin is allowed to run rampant. And so so he really doesn't have any power except the power of deception. What does it mean when somebody says, the devil made me do it? Folks, it doesn't mean a thing because the devil has, doesn't have that kind of power. The devil is limited to the power of deception and deceit. We're the ones who make the decision to follow through on it. His power is limited to deception. Perhaps that's his greatest accomplishment. He's been able to convince us that he has more power really has. Yeah. So think of him as this way, folks. He's the cussing parrot on your shoulder. Uh, you can <laughs> tell him to shut up and go away in the name of Jesus. That. Pat, you also describe him as a flea, a gnat, a tick, or a fly that a believer can flick away. <laughs> You like that? <laughs> I love that. I yeah. can see one of your comedy sketches. Oh yeah, that yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's him. And uh, but that's that's only one of the two narratives. The other narrative is that you know he's the CEO of sin, and and so he he is trying to destroy what God's trying to build, and so we we have to be cautious of that. As I said, the whole world's under the control of the evil one. Mm-hmm. But even even though he does have power, we need to also each understand that he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, uh, he's not hiding behind every bush. Um, and we also, the Bible says in First John chapter 5, we, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to, in habitual sin, the one who has been born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. So there you go. Pat, what would you say about somebody that wants to have a little bit of a blame mentality? It's just a lot easier to blame Satan than to say, you know, I, I, I fell to my own flesh. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. So let's, let's be you know, honest here. These, these voices are constantly talking over each other. It's not like they raise their voice and say, and say excuse me, excuse me, I have something to say. Could I, could I please have the floor now? Mm-hmm. You know, they're just constantly talking and they're talking over each other. And so what I've done in the book is I've said basically, okay, uh, world, you go over to that corner and, and, and don't move because I want to talk about you separately. And then I, flesh, you go over, you, you stand in that corner, devil, you go over in that corner. And then, uh, and then I'm, I've, I'm helping the reader understand 
who or what this voice is, where it's coming from, mm-hmm. and then the, the practical tools and how to deal with it. But let's face it, on a day-to-day basis, they, they are talking over each other. But with skill, with practice, you can learn to discern which is which. I like that. Patrick Morley is my guest. His book is The Four Voices, Taking Control of the Conversation in Your Head. Nice endorsement from Dr. Tony Evans. He said, read it, absorb it, let it renew your mind. Patrick is the best-selling author of the book, The Man in the Mirror. You may have read that, like me. My Bible study went through it. It was a great book. But The Four Voices, Taking Control of the Conversation in Your Head, is the topic we're going to continue talking about just after the break. Extremely lucky day to have Patrick Morley as my guest. His book is The Four Voices, Taking Control of the Conversation in Your Head. Let's get to the uh, the other voice, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay. This is when it like gets that. fun. Anybody who's read me before knows that I, I think it's extremely important to understand the problem. Because if you're trying to solve the wrong problem, then you can only succeed by accident, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So. But if you only know the problem, that doesn't help you at all with the solution, right? So most of my books take 10 or 20% of the time and focus on really understanding the problem correctly so that we can have a good solution. But my books are about solutions. And so most of this book really is about solutions. I'd say half of it is about the Holy Spirit. And uh, perhaps another fourth of it are strategies, 27 different tactics and strategies that that, uh, people can use to actually parse these voices and uh but the voice of the holy spirit yeah that's that's where the action is and so but you have to know how to turn the the voice of the holy spirit on right so i uh i bought a harley davidson motorcycle a full dresser nice 600 yeah 650 pounds cool cool motorcycle nice for that's my first dresser and so i i brought it home and i was going to take it out for a ride on saturday morning i got up and I couldn't get that thing started to save my life. And I, I checked the fuel. I made sure the ignition, I jiggled the ignition switch. I made sure the fuel cock was open. I, I even took the battery cables off, you know, and put them back on and everything. And I was so frustrated by the time the service department opened up on Saturday morning. I called down and I said, you can come pick this motorcycle up. I don't want it anymore because <laughs> I couldn't get it on. <laughs> well, the, the service the service rep was very calm and said, "May I? Can I ask you a few questions?" I said, "Sure." He said, "Well, you know, did you double jiggle the ignition switch?" I said, "Well, of course I did." And uh, okay, I, and she, did you make sure the gas was in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how about the fuel cock? Yes, I made sure the fuel cock was open. What about the battery cables? Are they connected correctly? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, well, what about the ignition switch on the handlebars? I said, the ignition switch on the handlebars? <laughs> there's, a, there's a second little switch on the handlebars, and I didn't know it was there. And it, the, the thing is, if you, so basically, this new Harley Davidson had turned into a 650-pound paperweight. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't use it because I didn't know how to turn it on. And you know, the Holy Spirit, most people are able to relate to the Father and to Jesus because there's this human uh, anthropomorphic 
analogy, you know, God the Father and, and Jesus was an actual human being. The Holy Spirit, for most people, it's a little difficult to understand. Is is it an it? Is it a he? You know, but the Bible, it's the spirit of Jesus. It's the spirit of the Father. He is the Father. He is Jesus, and he is himself. You know, that's, the, that's the whole concept of the Trinity. And so to help the, the reader get there, I, I really walk them through the, the different parts of how we come to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in this expanded edition that we're talking about today, I've got a, a new chapter there called Cultivating uh, the Voice of the Holy Spirit. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is the meat of the, meat of the coconut. So what, what do we do to help hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? Well, a number of things. Um, perhaps the, the most important thing is just to understand that it is a relationship. Mm. And that we, uh, just like any other relationship, you, you cultivate, cultivate a relationship by spending time together, uh, by talking, by listening. And uh, so, listeners, you know that you have been reading in the Bible, and maybe you've read a, a, a verse of Scripture before, but this particular day, it just feels like, you know, 10,000 gigawatts of electricity go through you, just really speaking to your to to your heart at that particular moment. That's the Holy Spirit. Or the pastor is speaking, and you feel like, oh my gosh, he's talking to me. That's the Holy Spirit. Or you're reading, uh, you're re- reading a book, and uh, you feel like the the, the 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 author's been reading your your mail. I said, that's well, that's the Holy Spirit. So sometimes the Holy Spirit comes uh, loud, crashing in, but usually it's a little bit more subtle. And uh, so, uh, you know, in terms of how to actually develop the skill for hearing the voice. We talk about that in the book. Uh, yeah, probably the other big thing I would just say, uh, it's just learning to be uh, responsive, uh, perhaps a word that people don't like to hear that much anymore, but obedient, mm-hmm. you know, just responsive to the whole, the voice of the Holy Spirit. I've got a friend here in uh, Orlando who is one of our uh, leaders at our Friday morning Bible study used to be. And one, uh, once he was, um, I'm in in Orlando, and he was hired to be the CEO of a small insurance startup company down in Palm Beach. So that's about a three and a half hour drive from Orlando. And so he would get up on Monday mornings, uh, drive down to Palm Beach, then drive back on Thursday afternoons to see his daughter play soccer and then lead his table group at her Bible study on Friday mornings. Well, he uh, has been alienated from his father for decades, and his uh, sister has just hated her her dad, and uh, he wasn't very fond of him either. But one morning, uh, he was driving down to Palm Beach around, he'd already been on the road for an hour or so, about 5 a.m. or something like that, and, and he hears this uh, voice in his head, call your dad. He said, that's ridiculous. It's, it's like 5 a.m. He's not going to be up. So he didn't do anything about it. About an hour later, he heard a voice in his head, call your dad. And he said, this doesn't make any sense. My dad my dad, and I, we're not even talking. We haven't talked for for years and years and years. He said, uh, wouldn't know what to say anyway. And then about a half an hour later, the voice came again. When are you going to call your dad? And at that point, like the young Samuel, he, he realized it must be God speaking to him. And so even though it was 6.30 a.m., he picked up the phone and gave his father a call not expecting his father to answer, but his father did answer. 
and uh, and the the greeting was warm, <laughs> and they got to talking, and David invited him, my friend David, invited his father to come to the annual Thanksgiving prayer breakfast that we have here in Orlando, not expecting his father to say yes, and to his astonishment, his father said he wanted to come, and so he did. He came, and and Billy gave his life oh my. to Jesus Christ that morning, and that's not the end of the story. The entire family got reconciled after that, and that's not the end of the story. David's father started attending the Friday morning Bible study that we teach and sat under the leadership of his son. The son discipled the father who never had discipled the son. And they were together for the rest of his days until he he died. And, And all because he was obedient to that voice of the Holy Spirit. Just think how many times I have not been obedient, oh my gosh, to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Who knows what I've missed out on, right? Yeah, what a great story, Pat. So, so maybe just in the time remaining, we we can talk about just maybe the voices that are the hardest to distinguish between. Yeah, um, I, it's going to be a little different for everybody, right? But uh, for those people who are uh, caught up in you know in the the system of the world, you know the the world is enticing us to pursue uh, fame, to pursue uh, fortune. Uh, uh, One of the voices in the world just wants to convince us that, you know, you deserve to be free. You know, you shouldn't have to live by anybody else's rules. You should be, you know, able to to call your own shots. There's also a feel-good spirituality out there right now in the world. You know, God just wants me to be happy. Uh, And then there's another, uh, there's another, uh, tradition or philosophy in the world that says, you know, my worth is my performance. Mm-hmm. I'm only, I'm only as good as, you know, how, uh, you know, what I can do to prove that I'm, <laughs> I'm worthwhile to be here. Um, and then probably another one, and there, there are others too that I talk about, but just personal peace. This was Francis Schaeffer's <clears throat> big idea back in the uh, 20th century, but it's still apl- applicable today. And, you know, it's this idea that, <clears throat> Um, other people's problems. They're not my problems. I don't want to get involved. You know, just leave mm-hmm. me alone. I want to do my thing. I, I paid my dues. It's, yeah. it's my turn to be happy, you know. Yeah. And so so a lot of people struggle with that. But then, you know, a lot of people, uh, some other, another group of people might struggle. There are three dialects to the, the voice of the uh, flesh. First John chapter 2, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And uh, so uh, I had a guy send me an email here recently that the pride of life, you know, he his, his whole life has been a shipwreck and he never understood that it was the pride of life that had taken control of his thought life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's bullying his kids and, you know, his wife and, and just basically like a, a, a snowplow going through life trying to you, you know, live life according to his own rules mm-hmm. because he was so proud. Makes sense? Yeah, does make sense. Pat, thank you so much for doing the show. A delight to have you back on. I always enjoy your company. You're a great writer and a great a great interview, so thank you for being with me. Bill, thank you, and thank you, listeners, for you tuning in today. You bet. Yep. Patrick Morley's been my guest. His book is The Four Voices, Taking Control of the Conversation in Your Head. We'll take a short break and be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Well, if you're like me, and I know I am, you probably have questions about the economy. There's always things that are uh, popping up in the news every day that makes you think, uh oh, what does that mean? Uh, what direction is the country going? Uh, what is going to happen uh, to my 401k? I mean, there's all kinds of thoughts you have when it comes to the economy. I always like having Dr. Ann Bradley on the program. She is the vice president of economic initiatives. Uh, she is a professor uh, and a uh, an author and just really a great friend of Faith Radio. Always love having her on. And welcome back. Hi, Bill. Thank you for having me. Yes, you know you've got quite a fan base you're developing here at the station. Did you know that? <laughs> I did not. Yeah, so I have already have questions in advance for you. I, I want, I want oh to goodness. invite anyone that's got a question for uh, Dr. Ann Bradley to send it over, 877-933-2484. But I've got a question I want to ask you to get things started, and that came in from a listener named Jim who said, the Fed buys assets. I think mostly debt. Is debt an asset? So the Fed does have balance sheets that it works off of. And we've talked about this previously. It's always worth just reiterating that they have a mandate. Um, And so the idea here is that the Fed has a limited role in managing. Largely, they're managing the money supply, right? So there's money demand. And there's money supply, just like there's demand and supply for other things. It's a similar type of concept. And so the Fed is responsible for that. And so it can change what's on its balance sheets. And so, yes, it can do things like buy debt. It can. And we've talked a little bit about what's gone on in the last two years, which I think, you know, it's time to pay the piper, which is what we're seeing right now, of course. So, you know, the Fed has these tools. At its discretion, the question, and I think what we're hearing from people, especially in the last few days, is it's really time for rules over discretion, which is um, kind of takes us back to Milton Friedman's theory about monetary policy. So if the Fed has too much discretion, then it's not bound, if that makes sense, right? So people who have power in our government, we want them to be bound by constraints so that they cannot accept what they are supposed to do. When the Fed operates by discretionary decisions, then they can, that leaves opening for them to either sell things or buy things or engage in quantitative easing and all these types of things. And so that kind of can get us off track. Mm-hmm. If the Fed follows, sorry, rules, then the rules kind of are laid out, transparent, and that's going to mean less volatility. Yeah. Now, Jim's question goes deeper. And because he says, with what do they buy assets if they're primarily a policy board or or are they all connected to the Treasury Department or completely separate? Yeah, so this is this is important because the Treasury is has different responsibilities, certainly than the Fed does. And the Fed buys assets. Um, With what? Through through different dealers, um, and it's authorized to make those transactions. And so this is kind of what we call quantitative easing. So it uses – it credits banks' accounts with basically the cash equivalent um, 
in the value of the asset that it bought, if that makes sense. So if it's going to buy an asset, then it credits the account. So it's basically saying we're putting money into your account. If, if, so it would be similar to another type of purchase that you can think about. All right. So his final comment and question, and he's a big fan of Dr. Ann Bradley, but let's face it, who isn't? Um, they have an enormous amount of debt on their balance sheet. And he said, I've been reading that they will begin unwinding these assets. Who will buy this debt? Well, other countries. So people are worried about this. I think that they're, you know, I think there's different levels of worry and certainly different economists will have different opinions. But for example, China is a country that has historically purchased debt. And so, you know, people might worry about that because on the one hand, People are worried about China for a lot of reasons because they're an authoritarian government, but they're also very a, lar- a very large economy who is now entwined with the global economy. So other countries can do this. And so, you know, on the one hand, we need someone to buy our debt, right? If no one will buy our debt, then we have to stop accumulating the debt. <laughs> and there's a really important economic principle there that we've talked about. We talk about all the time, right? So. Um, this is where we want to be careful. Um, on the one hand, if you're going to accumulate debt, somebody has to be willing to hold it. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there are concerns about China, China's government and Chinese firms doing these kind of things. And so it's a double-edged sword, but I think it gets us back to the principle that we talk about all the time that's so important here is that we have to control our spending and the Fed – needs to now the fed is not a fiscal institution it's in charge of monetary policy but obviously monetary policy and fiscal policy are intimately connected and so if we're going to run up a lot of debt through our fiscal policies then there's going to have to be some way to pay for that debt and so there's there's a lot of talk and i encourage readers to to think about this there's a lot of talk of um in the news recently about what we call modern monetary theory. And so kind of the idea behind modern monetary theory was that the Fed, the federal government can basically just print money and it's really not going to lead to inflation. Um, And, you know, there's been a lot of economists who have scratched their heads at this and said, well, why not? Um, We've always believed that that that's the case, that if you just um, print money just because of your United States government and people want to hold the dollar, which is true. The dollar is very valuable. It's the world currency of reserve, but that doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. And so there's been a lot of kind of people saying, economists saying, it's time to do away with this magical thinking that you can just print money and you will never get inflation. We are in a time of inflation and we're in a time of the worst inflation we've seen in 40 years. So it's a serious problem, Mm -hmm. and it will get worse if we don't do something about it. So what Mm. the Fed is doing now is painful but necessary. Yeah, Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She's uh, not only an author and professor, but she's also a contributing author to the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics uh, Institute, which is T-I-F-W-E dot org. Now, Anne, I just think I read today that the feds are thinking about they're going to raise the interest rates to try to avoid a recession. Would you help us put that into a perspective we can all understand? Sure. So basically, when you think about an interest rate, so the Fed 
does not control all the interest rates in the economy. The Fed controls interest rates between different banks. And so kind of that's kind of an easier way to think about it. So the Fed just can't say, okay, the mortgage rates are going to be this. But the mortgage rates are going to follow what the lending is, you know, kind of how much liquidity is in the economy. And that's going to be determined by the interest rate. And so when the Fed is raising rates, what they're trying to do is kind of temper the economy, right? So think about what happens when interest rates for a variety of things, investments go up. That means that there's a different cost benefit analysis that the investor has to make between do I choose to save my money or do I choose to spend my money? And so interest rates are going to change those decisions of both investors and consumers. And so this is done to try to avoid what, you know, the R word, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we don't want to have a recession. Um, we don't want to have a period of depressed economic growth. We don't want to have it, which is, you know, reduction in D- GDP. We don't want to have um, labor market uh, shortages and, you know, kind of no hiring signs and these types of things. So that's we're we're really trying. I think the Fed is really trying now to not repeat all of the 70s. I mean, and we're there a little bit, aren't we? A little um, bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we didn't nobody talked about the misery index for a long time. And it seems like that's on the tip of people's tongues now. That's not a good thing. Right. The misery index measures levels of unemployment and levels of inflation. So People talked about the misery index a lot in the 1970s, and it was at its all-time high then, I think, around 21 or 22 percent, something like this. And so, you know, these are things that we want to avoid. We want to avoid misery. (laughs) We want to not have to worry about something like the misery index. And there's lots of economists out there who have done decades of work thinking about monetary policy, which is obviously very complicated. And I think it's time for us to listen to some of them. But this is where policy meets theory. And this is the real world. Mm-hmm. So we have to have our print. I always tell my students, when you're going to a policy fight, pack your principles in your suitcase, <laughs> right? We always have to go armed with our principles. What are the truths we know about economics? What are the truths we know about how the economy works? We live in a world of scarcity is the most fundamental of those truths. And we can't forget that just because, oh, it's a crisis or this or that. But policy has different sets of incentives, right? And it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that policymakers are evil or worse than us or, or anything like that. It just means they face a lot of political pressure. And so they make decisions under those sets of incentives and those decisions might not be the best for the long run. They might be the best for now. And I think that's why we're feeling the inflation right now, Bill, because for a long time, the last two years, obviously we went through a pandemic that was unprecedented and affected the whole globe. So we can say, okay, it was an unusual set of circumstances. But again, this is where you pack your principles with you. The Fed, that doesn't mean the Fed should have just engaged in all this quantitative easing and injected all this liquidity into the economy, because now we're paying the price for that, right? So you always have to pay the price. Why? Because the principles of economics are always true, even when we don't like them. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little bit of a slow learner, so I'm going to ask this question maybe in a different way. If they're Feds are raising the rates, and the cost of getting a home mortgage goes up. The cost of getting a car loan goes up, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how this helps inflation. So people That's are so confusing start... to me. It is. It's these are these are hard things, um, and I think 
you know, there's not a quick, easy answer maybe, but one of the things we're trying to, so think about what's going to happen to household savings now. It's going to be more attractive to engage in household savings and reduce different types of, of spending. And so that's how it helps inflation because there's different types of inflationary pressures that are, that are, that affect the economy. And so one way to do that is, is to, encourage savings over spending. And when interest rates go up, that's what we're in effect attempting to do. So when mortgage rates were 2.5%, everybody was refinancing. It was a great time to buy a house. People, especially coming out of COVID, because people mm-hmm. were making decisions like, well, I can telework now, so I'm, I'm going to move out of, and this certainly happened in Manhattan. Manhattan lost a lot of residents over COVID because people said, well, I don't want to live in the city. I don't have to. I can work from home. Yeah, I'm going to go move with my family. So low interest rates on homes, home loans, what is it's just supply and demand, right? You're going to move along your own demand curve. You're going to say it's a great time to buy a house. So I'll buy a house. But as interest rates go up, you're going to say, well, maybe I should wait. And so that's the effect that we're looking for. And it's really interesting because when you look at home sales, At least, you know, I live in the D.C. area and the government is the world's biggest employer. So there's always people coming and going. And the the D.C. real estate market is a little bit different, I think, than other markets. But three months ago, you weren't even seeing homes go on the market. You were seeing people send. We got a letter at one point in our mailbox saying, if you're thinking about selling, call this number, this realtor. You know, because people couldn't find homes. And now we're seeing lots more inventory. Um, just more than there was before. So, you know, house might sit on the market for two or three weeks, which is still not very long, but, but it's a big shift. And the reason for that is because people are slowing down. They're saying, well, wait, let let me wait. Um, And certainly the refinance, you know, kind of party that everybody was having two years ago because of those low rates, that's kind of winding down for now as well. Um, It's not as attractive to refinance at 6%, you know, than it is at, at 3%. And so that's that's how it's it's kind of taming spending, and that and that then loosens some of those inflationary pressures. Yeah, the housing market was so nuts. There were people were shopping for homes that weren't for sale. That weren't for sale. They would not have any contingencies. Right. People were no inspections. People weren't even nothing. looking at the home. It was. It's really wild. Yeah. It's. We'll take a break. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She's an economist, and if you have a question about the economy. I'd love to hear it and we'll get it on the program and she'll answer it for you. You can text it over to me, 877-933-2484. Be right back. talking about the economy with Dr. Ann Bradley. If you have a question about it, you can let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. And we're always talking about oil and gas. But my question is, what influence do foreign oil producers have on U.S. inflation? Yeah, that's a great question and certainly something that's being hotly debated right now. I just saw some numbers on this the other day. It's not as big as you would think. 
Hmm. And so we import oil from a lot of different countries, um, and we also produce it. And so this is important because we are a diversified economy, and we are not completely reliant on imports. So when you have, you know, Russia invading the Ukraine, and we're still seeing that unfold, uh, if your country was entirely or largely dependent on importing oil from Russia, this is very problematic. Because if you want to execute an embargo to try to force the hand of Putin to stop what he's doing, which is what that's what this kind of tools of sanctions are about, it's harder to do that if you have just a lot of kind of, you know, importing from one country. So this is not the case for the United States. Um, and we produce our, our own oil, which is a good thing. Uh, something I come back to over and over and over again uh, when I think about this is that oil is the most one of the most politicized goods, mm-hmm. commodities. And this is just always a problem. Since in the post-World War II era, two things have happened that have been very important for oil as a commodity. And one is economic growth, and the other is population growth. So in that era, people have gotten a lot richer, and that wealth is comes through increased productivity, and increased productivity gives us stuff, right? And the stuff requires energy. So I always ask my students to think about how many outlets they have in their home, and nobody can tell me the number. I can't even tell you the number. I, have, I should do the exercise myself and go count them. But, you know, what is what are all those outlets for? Nightlights, humidifiers, blenders, microwaves, all sorts of things, right? So the richer we are, the more innovations we have, which makes us even more richer, pushes this dependence on oil. But the problem with it being politicized, is that that means that governments have more of a say about who makes it, who's going to trade with whom, and what are the terms of that trade going to be. And so that means that the trade is going to be less efficient than it otherwise would be if we let it be a less of a constrained market and more of a free market. And so this has got decades of history behind it. It's hard to undo. I will say the bright light in all of this is that we are really changing our patterns of energy consumption because of hybrid energy and alternative sources of energy. And so when you think about an economy like Venezuela, they're very different than ours in terms of oil because they are not a diversified economy. They relied very, very heavily on oil production to prop up their economy. And then Chavez nationalized oil production. And so they lived high on the hog for a little bit and it wrecked their entire economy. And so if if your portfolio isn't diversified as a country, then that kind of, you know, if you're really dependent on all those exports and then your economy crashes, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. In addition, the, the hybrid and green energy and all the things that are being developed hurts Venezuela. It hurts us less. And the reason it hurts us less, A, is because we're diversified, but B, because the United States is the source of a lot of that innovation. And so that means that we're doing a lot of that work here. We're using human capital in creative ways, and that creates jobs and adds to economic growth, all of those things that we care about. So I think this is really the core of the problem. So the United States is not in as much trouble right now vis-a-vis 
Russian oil imports being halted than other countries who are far more dependent on Russia for their energy. Mm-hmm. So diversification is always the kind of name of the game. And the United States is a powerhouse in both agriculture, manufacturing, and services. And so we're a very diversified and very productive economy. That is our safeguard in any kind of crisis, whether it's COVID and we can't get masks, you know, if we can't import them from China, so we have to find another place. We have lots of good trade relationships. So it's easier for us to find an alternative country to import from, if that makes sense. It does make sense. When you're, you yeah. know, when you're so focused, when you just have this one-way relationship, then when crises happen, it's actually Russia and Russians that suffer more than others. Mm-hmm. And I know there's no quick fix for high inflation. Uh, and I'm, I know this is probably a question you can't even answer, but do you think prices will go down to where they were before inflation? When this thing settles? Absolutely. Oh, good. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. So I had a, I had a talk last night, my summer class meets, um, and one of the students' questions, it's funny because we were supposed to talk about property rights, <laughs> and we talked about inflation and gas prices, very <laughs> apropos for what we're doing the whole time because this is what they're interested in and, right. and worried about, right? So we talked a lot about this, and um, – You know, one of the students said, look, I think that maybe the inflation we're seeing, especially with gas prices, is because of greed. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think it's helpful to think about the answer to your question. If greed drove systematic inflation, I'm talking we're talking 8.6 percent of inflation across the economy. It's not just oil. It's everything. Eggs, bacon, milk, cars, everything. That is a hard story, right, to say that everybody just got really greedy or somehow that COVID and supply shocks and all these things, we have lots of lots of monopolies, right, because monopolies just have more market power to alter prices or alter output. But that's not what we see. The United States economy is not run by mostly monopolies that have this ability to extort from us during a crisis. And just systematic greed is not a good story. It's not like people just everybody woke up who runs a company and said, I'm going to be greedy because I can. Actually, what we should look at is long-term prices. And so price oil prices were really high right around where they are now, I think about 2007. And then they went back down into the average of, you know, $2 range. So that's why I think we're going to come out of it. If we pursue the right monetary policies and which I think they're doing now. The harder part is pursuing fiscal reevaluation of how we spend money in this country. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm a little bit more skeptical. It doesn't seem like either political party really wants to slow down spending. They just kind of have things they really like to spend money on. And those things are different across political parties. Yeah. So we need a kind of new type of thinking in Washington to fix that part of the problem. But I think when inflation gets under control, gas prices are not going to stay at their current rates forever. And we haven't seen that happen historically when there's been a crisis before, Mm -hmm. a shortage, anything like that. They always come back down. Why? Because this is an economy of mostly competitive markets. Yeah. And it's right. So the the suppliers are competing for your business. And they're going to fight for those low prices. Sorry. Well, no, no, no. I I was just about a minute left and I, I want to squeak in one more question. What about high rent prices? 
Are those coming down? We hope they'll come down. And again, this all depends on how free the market is. If you want prices to be nimble, meaning they, they, they move when we want them to, to, right, they go back down eventually, then we need to loosen some of these regulations, which actually uh, are very harmful. So things like rent control don't make this any easier uh, because rent control basically tells a landlord that you're not allowed to get what the market says you could get. You have to take some lower amount. And so that opens the door for lots of different types of discriminatory practices. And so under rent control regimes, what you see is, you know, if you can only charge to $1,600 a month, then they're going to charge you a key fee or, you know, mm-hmm. something else that's yeah. outrageous because yeah. they're trying to make up the gap. Yeah. So I think we will, but I think what we need to see is lots of competition so that those prices go back down. Yeah. And you, I just love having you on. Thank you so much for being with us today, and I'll look forward to our next conversation. Great. Thank you, Bill. You bet. Dr. Ann Bradley has been my guest, an economist, and you always can send questions over anytime you've got one about the economy because I'll have her on regularly. That's our show for tonight. Thanks to the guys for Guide Talk and for Pat Morley and for Dr. Ann Bradley. I hope you had a great day, and thank you for making this show and, and part of your day. It means a lot to me. I hope you have a nice evening, get a good night's sleep, and I'll be with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.